Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon in this week for Jerome McDonnell. President Trump will announce his nominee for the Supreme Court tonight, but we're not the only country paying close attention to the Supreme Court. Poland's ruling party, the Law and Justice Party, has lowered the retirement age for judges from 70 to 65, forcing about a third of the court into retirement. Here's how some have reacted. It's the latest move in a series that critics say aims to stack the courts in favor of the ruling party. Joining us now to talk about those protests we just heard and what's happened is John Kulczynski. He's professor emeritus of history at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he taught Polish history. He's also the author of the book, Belonging to the Nation, Inclusion and Exclusion in the Polish-German Borderlands, 1939 to 1951. Welcome to Worldview, John. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. So what were some of the things people were chanting there for people who don't know Polish? Well, uh, one that uh, was being chanted was constitution. Uh, And uh, the point is that the Polish constitution of 1997 uh, specifically states that the president of the Supreme Court is appointed for a six-year term. And so... Uh, in uh, lowering the requirement, uh, lowering the retirement age, they are trying to force the uh, current uh, president of the Supreme Court to resign. Uh, the funny thing is that the candidate that they're proposing to replace the president uh, is 66 years old. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously uh, the whole process is uh, political. Uh, they want their own people uh, to control the judiciary and uh, they're willing to violate the Constitution, at least uh, theoretically violate the Constitution uh, to achieve this. Now, the head of the court, the president, um, she actually has uh, refused to step down, the one that they were kind of forcing, the first one they were forcing yes. uh, to retire. She's the first woman to lead the Supreme Court. Um, she actually, the, the law went into effect and she said, no, I won't retire. Tell right. us a little bit more about her. Well, uh, I, I really, frankly, I don't really know much about her. Uh, uh, she did indeed refuse to retire and I and she said she would continue to come to the court, but uh, I don't really know what has happened uh, in the meanwhile. Was she barred from entering or not? I, I haven't seen any reports yet on that. Now, this, this she called it uh, purge. That's the term she yes. used for what they were doing with this retirement uh, age limit. Um, and this is not the first move that the government has made kind of to – 
to stack the courts, if you will. Yes. Um, and Poland has two courts. They have the Supreme Court, which uh, rules on elections and and other kinds and of... And interprets the Constitution, whereas the Constitutional Tribunal uh, simply decides whether a particular law is constitutional or not. So there's this separation between interpretation and recognition of whether our law is constitutional. And they have already made changes on the constitutional court, starting from the very beginning when they yes. came to power back in 2015. Right. Um, but what's, you know, okay, so they've, there's this retirement age, which clearly seems political. Um, but, you know, here we have uh, the Republicans didn't nominate, you know, didn't give a hearing to Merrick Garland. They sat on some other Obama nominees. Then Trump came in and they're pushing their judges in. So really it's a sort of trying to skew the court in a certain direction. What, what's, how do the two compare, though? What, what's different about what's going on in Poland? Well, uh, it, it's a very interesting idea to, to compare the two. In a sense, uh, on paper, uh, the procedures uh, in Poland uh, are, on paper, uh, supposedly doing more to provide a non-partisan court, whereas in uh, the United States, uh, it all depends who's the president at the time that a filling uh, is possible. So uh, actually, it's it's more uh, a, uh, a roll of the dice in, in the United States. In Poland, there are these very detailed procedures for choosing judges. Uh, it's just that the various institutions that are that are supposed to participate in the choosing of judges have gradually been taken over by uh, the uh, governing party. So uh, the result, in a sense, is, is the same. Both are packing uh, the court uh, in a partisan way. Mm -hmm. And has, uh, have, has the constitutional court, have we already seen the effects of the packing of the court in Poland? Have they ruled on important cases? No, uh, as far as I know, this is uh, just too recent for anything uh, like that to have happened. I, I understand that the retirement age would remove 27 out of 72 of the, of the judges. So uh, I haven't, uh, I think there hasn't been enough time yet to see uh, any sort of uh, effects of this. And uh, with what's gone on with the other court, the constitutional court, which those changes have been in place for a couple of years now, have we seen the impact there? Absolutely. Uh, laws that uh, a nonpartisan court might have might well have ruled as unconstitutional were uh, decided as constitutional by the people that had been uh, appointed by uh, the uh, party. So. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and I'm talking with John Kulczynski. He's Professor Emeritus of History at UIC, and we're talking about changes to Poland's Supreme Court. Up next, we'll talk about a housing program for victims of Hurricane Maria. Um, you know, there's been a lot of pushback to this most recent move on the Supreme Court and from a couple of different places. We've seen the, the judge who sort of refused to go to work. Um, we've seen protests, kind of people coming out. And this mm -hmm. is not the first time since this Law and Justice Party has come into power that we've seen pretty robust protests. Uh, we saw it with the 
laws around abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw them. We saw protesters sit in uh, in parliament over media. Um, what is it that sort of drives this kind of vibrant opposition? Well, this kind of uh, street protest is uh, almost, one could say, a Polish tradition. Uh, It is, of course, uh, the same kind of tactic that eventually forced uh, the communist government to resign. So uh, there is a a long kind of uh, tradition of this kind of protest. It's it's interesting that now it is being uh, used against uh, a Polish uh, government Mm. rather than one that was seen as alien or at least imposed uh, by alien powers, the Soviet Union. So uh, it it comes down to almost uh, a debate as to who is Polish. Uh, the the uh, party in power tends to talk about who are the true poles mm-hmm. and they say they are they are representing the true poles whereas the people in the opposition are not true poles because of the various uh values that they represent. Uh, the party uh, wants, I mean, Kaczynski, the, who's the real leader of the party, he wants to create a kind of Polish Catholic state. Uh, and uh, anyone who opposes this kind of Polish, ethnically Polish Catholic state uh, is seen as either a traitor or uh, under alien influences or uh, simply has values that are destructive of what is seen as as true Polish values. And that's despite the fact that something like 97 or 98 percent of the country is ethnically Polish. Uh, correct. Correct. Uh, and uh, but that doesn't mean that they're recognized as true poles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I use the word true poles because this is what Kaczynski has used on various occasions uh, when he makes these campaign stops. He talks about who are the true poles and what are their beliefs as opposed to the uh, poles who aren't really poles. And yet, these opposition polls who maybe have been uh, fingered as not true polls, they were successful on, on the abor- in the case of abortion, of, of stopping uh, that change, in, at least temporarily. Temporarily. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and they did, and, and same with the case of the media, they did seem to have some impact. Did you th- what do you think the impact will be this time around? Well, I, I think uh, that it's hard to see how the government uh, will retreat on this because uh, they've committed themselves quite strongly here. And uh, it's hard to know uh, how what sort of compromise might be found. Uh, mm. How might the government step back? Uh, a little bit in order to uh, satisfy the protests or at least to uh, undermine the protests. So I, I've, it, it's hard to see how this will be resolved. Uh, yeah, I mean, with, with sort of that kind of rhetoric of saying people aren't aren't true Poles, I saw uh, Lech Walesa, the longtime labor leader, um, he, he came out and said, um, this is the path of civil war. I'd like to avoid it, um, uh-huh. basically predicting there's going to be a civil war in Poland. Do you, is that exaggerated? Uh, I think uh, that's overstated. I don't think uh, it'll necessarily 
necessarily lead to violence. Uh, the likelihood of violence uh, comes up when the government has the security forces to try to suppress the protests, which are basically peaceful. No doubt there are some opponents of the government who are willing to resort to violence, but that is not uh, representative at all of, of the opposition. Um, what do you, what's the U.S. role in all of this? Is, is the... Does the government um, take is, – is what's happening here in the U.S. where we've seen sort of similar kinds of divisions and, and political kind of name-calling and, and indicating people are not patriotic and the like, um, does that – does that influence, uh, do you think, what's what's happening over in Poland? Is that a part of this? Well, actually, uh, it started in Poland before it started here. Uh, the uh, current uh, law and justice uh, party was elected uh, to power in 2015. Sure. So, and the rhetoric was already there sure. uh, in, at the very beginning. And they, since 2015, have been gradually moving, as you mentioned, in various areas, whether, whether uh, it's media or public ability to have demonstrations. Uh, and so... Uh, of course, uh, what's happening in the United States may uh, encourage them and they're able to say, well, see, it's not just us. And even in Europe, they can now say this because of the uh, recent elections in Italy, in Austria, and uh, already uh, earlier, uh, the elections in Hungary. Mm -hmm. So so uh, they can, uh, in the party in Poland can simply say, well, uh, you know, what we're doing is what everyone else is doing. Now, you know, here we see, we hear about the protests, we hear about the opposition, but how how does the rest of the country sort of feel about the, the ruling party at this time? Well, uh, there was a, a, an interview with Anne Applebaum, actually, on NPR, and she estimated that uh, the base of the uh, Law and Justice Party is about 30 percent mm -hmm. of the population. And one might wonder, well, how how did they achieve this uh, power uh, with only 30 percent? Or I think actually in the election, they got something like 38 percent. So in any case, it was well short of a majority. But part of the problem is that the opposition is quite divided. Uh, and uh, this affects elections because uh, if you have several parties running and the parties do not get the 5% that is necessary to enter parliament, then those votes are divided among the parties. And since the Law and Justice Party has, is the largest, they get the larger percentage of these uh, votes. So uh, simply because of the way the elections are set up and with the large number of, uh, of opposition parties, uh, this enables uh, enable the uh, Law and Justice Party to uh, achieve a majority, which is the first time since the fall of communism that one party was able to gain control of parliament. So that's, that's part of it. The, uh, there's also, I think, part of it that uh, many of the people have uh, don't vote. Mm -hmm. uh, th those who support the government are very militant and they will vote. Uh, those who are opposed say, ah, what's the use? And many of them don't uh, vote. I think 
the opposition is centered in urban areas. Uh, it's uh, led by people who are uh, intellectuals, members of the media, people who are quite prominent, whereas uh, the a rural population and oftentimes people who are not as well educated, they will simply support the government. So again, similar parallels yes. with some of what we've seen um, here in the U.S. Well, it will be interesting to watch uh, what happens next with how this Supreme Court thing shakes out with the EU weighing mm-hmm. in and the like. Yes. John Kolchitsky is Professor Emeritus of History at UIC. He's also the author of Belonging to the Nation, Inclusion and Exclusion in the Polish-German Borderlands, 1939 to 1951. John, thanks so much for joining us and talking about the changes to Poland's Supreme Court. Thank you. actually the Rolling Stones. They performed in Warsaw yesterday. Mick Jagger reportedly told concert goers in Polish, I'm too old to be a judge, but I'm young enough to sing. The Stones actually played their first concert in Poland in 1967. They were one of the first Western bands to perform behind the Iron Curtain. to Worldview on WBEZ, I'm Alexandra Solomon. Each Monday during the 2018 hurricane season, Worldview presents a series called Porto Reconstruction. Three million American citizens on Puerto Rico still face catastrophe many months after Hurricane Maria devastated the island. Experts predict just a Category 1 storm could wipe out power on the island for months. As part of the series, we're talking about life in Puerto Rico post-Maria, issues that are important to people there, and to Chicago's Puerto Rican diaspora. And today we're going to talk about a program run by FEMA known as Transitional Sheltering Assistance. It provides temporary shelter in hotels to victims of natural disasters, including the victims of hurricanes Harvey and Maria, which struck Texas and Puerto Rico last year. Last month, FEMA announced it would end. FEMA's Transitional Sheltering Assistance for Texas and Puerto Rico residents affected by last fall's hurricanes will be ending this Saturday. Over the past 10 months, 97% of those in the program have been able to repair their homes or transition to other housing options. We recognize there are still survivors that are in the program and FEMA is committed to working today with them and our partners at the state and local entities and voluntary agencies to help meet their needs. We recognize that this deadline will be a difficult time for some families but know that FEMA continues to work with our partners to provide continued help to find longer-term housing options and to help those survivors from Hurricanes Maria and Harvey. 
A judge has since extended the program, but it has faced criticism here and Chicago and beyond. Joining me now to talk about what's worked and what hasn't is Carrie Leiderson. She's a lecturer at Northwestern University's graduate journalism program. She leads the social justice and investigative specialization there. Martha Bain is associate editor of the Social Justice News Nexus at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. And Hannah Wiley is a recent graduate of the Medill School of Journalism. They've all been reporting on this program. Welcome to Worldview. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Um, So, Carrie, let me just start with you. Um, This program, um, how exactly does it work? You apply for housing uh, through these hotels. How long does it last? Right. So that's that question isn't as easy to answer as uh, you would think it would be, which is part of the whole story. So the idea is that it's supposed to provide a temporary um, emergency housing option for people displaced by natural disasters. And um, the, the big story in Chicago, which I'm sure we'll be talking more about, is just how difficult it has been for people to access or even to know about. So um, it took us a while to find out exactly how it works. Um, and a lot of people in Chicago never figured that out. But basically, when you apply for um, assistance through FEMA after a hurricane, it's supposed to be automatically part of the process where it's determined whether you're eligible for that program. And then FEMA tells you how to sign up and then you choose from a list of hotels that are currently enrolled in the program. And it's sort of up to you to figure out if that hotel is going to work for you and to just go through the steps that, um, you know, end up leading to you staying there. And um, Martha, Carrie mentioned that uh, part of the problem in Chicago is that people just didn't know about the program, couldn't access it. What, what were the barriers? There just here? seemed to be a lot of confusion around it. Um, we talked to several people who, um, you know, had it didn't didn't really either didn't understand how it worked, had gotten incomplete information from whatever service providers that they were talking to, um, or I just found the whole process so frustrating that they gave up and didn't pursue it and found other housing in through other means. Now, one of the things is this is a program and it's not just here in Chicago. It's basically kind it's of not. in any in any place where there are people victims uh, from the hurricane would be able to access this program. Um, but uh, Illinois also seemed to have very here in Chicago. We had very few uh, hotels participating. Why was that? We don't know. Yeah. Um, So uh, when I had gone to a few of the hotels, um, some of the managers, uh, some of the people who are directly involved with partnering with TSA just said that they didn't have any families who uh, took advantage of the of the offering. Um, And it really came back to the marketing and it came back to them just not knowing about the program, like Mark Martha said, Um, some of the hotels in Chicago had maybe three, four families. Some had a couple dozen, but short-term stays. And then when you look at the list, there are some like way far down in southern Illinois or central Illinois. I mean, there was one in my hometown of Bradley, Illinois, which is an hour south of here. And it's just such a hard spot to get to. So like, why, why would a Puerto Rican family with no you know, connections to Southern Illinois, go down and stay in Southern Illinois. If I can just tag onto that, like there were literally, um, I believe at the max, there were two hotels inside the city of Chicago participating Mm -hmm. during the whole time that the program was operative. There were also several just outside the city limits near Midway. And then the rest were in the burbs or downstate. And did you all get a sense of 
why so few hotels here were participating. What the was it because they didn't want to take part in the program? Was it mismanagement by FEMA? Did you get a sense, Carrie, of what was behind that? Yeah, FEMA said that they can do outreach to hotels to um, just get more hotels aware and and to get hotels to volunteer to participate. But they didn't do that in Illinois. There were um, more hotels enrolled in Florida and in other states. And um, presumably there was more word of mouth or maybe FEMA did do more outreach in those states. Um, But in Illinois, it, it seemed FEMA isn't obligated to, you know, proactively seek more hotels to join, but it seems like that just would have been a good idea in this case. Um, and then the the hotels that were participating didn't even sometimes had rooms that weren't filled, even the ones in Chicago. So that gets back to this just ridiculous disconnect where there's a lot of Puerto Rican evacuee families in Chicago that desperately needed housing. And there is hotels, even with the low enrollment, there are hotels that have rooms that FEMA will pay for. And yet those evacuees aren't staying in them. So it was just a bureaucratic, really a missed opportunity and a um resources that actually were out there that weren't being utilized because of lack of um, just more effective um, administration of this program. And how does that compare uh, to pass? Now, this is a program that's been used um, not just for victims of Hurricane Harvey and Maria, but Hurricane Sandy, and it's been around for for quite some time. So, how does how, how does it compare? You know, this time around, you know, how many people have been served this time around in this particular program with with past hurricanes? I think you know the bigger story, which we haven't really mentioned yet, is that this hurricane is just so completely different as far as Puerto Rico is concerned. So this program is meant to be, normally it only lasts a a month or two. It's meant to be literally a short stopgap for families while their house is repaired and then they can go back to their house. So, you know, from what I hear, it functions okay in other hurricanes in that way. Um, But in this case, you know, you've seen the extension time after time and the government is just sort of scrambling and doesn't really know what to do with the families who are using it because in Puerto Rico's case, it's not, the hurricane was way more devastating than most hurricanes and then it also so comes on top of the just crumbling of Puerto Rico's infrastructure and economy because of the debt crisis and you know people would trace it even further back to the whole colonial status of the island so the hurricane on top of that so many people are just literally not able to go back even if their house is repaired they don't have a job they don't have Healthcare, their school has been closed. So it's a temporary program, and the sort of chaos it's been thrown into in this case shows, you know, just the larger chaos and, and how this situation is so different with Maria and Puerto Rico than past hurricanes where this program's been used. Right, where maybe a couple of months would have sufficed enough and someone could return, whereas in this case, the, the reconstruction is nowhere near um, uh, to a level where lots of people could go back home. I'm I'm curious about the conditions um, because uh, there was reporting that these hotels in New York, for example, were not actually real hotels. Some of them were kind of um, not very good conditions. Um, But that's not been the case in what you've seen here in Illinois. No, not at all. Um, The hotels are excellent hotels. Um, Specifically, the Hyatt-centric in the Loop was um, a great hotel with a restaurant at the bottom. um, And several of the hotels offer continental breakfast. They are uh, suites. They offer suite style. They accommodate pets. They accommodate larger families. Um, They have a staff that is willing to 
really reach out and help the Puerto Rican families in whatever capacity that they might need, whether it be winter clothing or um, just offering help around the city or whatever town that the family landed in. And so it's very different from the New York story. It's um, completely different, really. And like Carrie had mentioned, it's a missed opportunity for uh, FEMA to really offer some of these families a a nice resource to stay. And did you speak with families uh, about what what their experience was like? Did did people have good things to say then about the experience? I can answer that. Um, The the big thing that we found in trying to report the story was that it was very, very hard to find people who had actually, actually used the program. <laughs> we found a lot of people who had been frustrated or thwarted by it or didn't know about it. Um, and we did finally find one woman who had um, stayed for several months in a hotel down by Midway. Um, and she had nothing but great things to say. She was much happier with that experience than she was actually with her current living situation where she'd been moved into a into an apartment Um so um, and that, that and she and at that point she was like I really want to go home but I don't know how to go home. Um, so she was very ple- you know she was um, really happy with with that. I'm talking with reporters Carrie Leiderson, Martha Bain, and Hannah Wiley, and we're talking about FEMA's transitional sheltering assistance program known as TSA. Um, so you know we've had this kind of um, missed opportunity, I believe is the word you use, Carrie, where there were here in Illinois kind of nice accommodations that would have helped uh, people kind of fleeing this this terrible disaster. Um, And here we are, um, you know, months, months, months and months later and um, still no, uh, no sign that Puerto Rico is a place where people can return. And we've had this program extended repeatedly through lawsuits, correct? That's that's what's kept it open? Um, partly FEMA's made the decision to extend it. And then with this most recent one, there was a lawsuit. Um, it was sort of like they kind of said, you know, we really mean it this time. And then there was a lawsuit and then they did extend it again. And those have been sort of just extending sometimes by a few days. People don't know. I mean, so what happens next? Is there a sense of what happens? This next deadline is is coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a sense of whether there is any kind of plan in place for the next step for and because there's still a lot of people here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there is. And, and I also just want to really quickly mention, you know, you mentioned the New York um, situation. The Center for Investigative Reporting in Puerto Rico did this expose about the problems with the hotels or so-called hotels in New York. And they're the ones that got us started on this story um, in Illinois. And I think we'll continue working with them on, you know, what, what you mentioned, what comes next. FEMA does have long-term rental assistance. A small number of families in Illinois have been moved into that. So, you know, that's one of the questions. Will more families be able to access long-term rental assistance, but that goes back to the whole situation on the island. You can't get long-term rental assistance if your home is fine to go back to, but you know your job, everything else may not be fine to go back to. And that's also where um, the city and all the other players that normally help people in vulnerable situations um, other than FEMA come in. You know, the open question is, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. And is that who's been feel- filling the gaps, really, our local organizations? Is that what you found mm-hmm. here? And that's, yeah, uh, definitely. And there's been a lot of... Um, Especially, you know, local service providers in the Puerto Rican community have really gone to the mat, I think, for a lot of these families. Um, but, yeah, you know, there is also an affordable housing crisis in Chicago. And um, I 
I did. A, I reported on a different story, not the, from a, a woman who came up here um, from Puerto Rico before the TSA program was even implemented. Um, and she was staying uh, in a shelter for many, many months, and she was trying to get uh, uh, housing through the CHA. Um, when I last checked in with her in April, um, she was still living in a shelter. Hmm. And, that, and the affordable housing provided by the CHA hadn't yet panned out for mysterious reasons. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, when you, when you have interviewed people here um, about what their experience um, has been like, um, ones who had never heard of this particular program, I mean, what <clears throat> do you hear? Is it housing? Is that, is that what people tell you this is what we need um, or you know I know the government has offered people money to return back to Puerto Rico so what are you hearing from people as to sort of what um, who are here what it is they feel like they need and what it is they want I think housing is you know housing is one of the bedrock human needs so um, a lot of people said that you know until I have housing until I feel stable and secure in where I'm living um, then, you know, I can't go find a job. I can't enroll my child in school. I can't do all of these things. So housing, I think, remains really a, a critical concern for people, obviously less so than perhaps six months ago um, when we were really seeing an influx of people coming up here with very little resources. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah. And and people sort of playing, ready to sort of set down roots here? Yeah. Here? I think a lot of people have gone back. Um uh, for various reasons, um, because they were frustrated, because they didn't like the weather, because um, because they uh, they decided that uh, they'd rather try to make a go of it in Puerto Rico, a place that they know and that's their home. But one of the oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and one of the crucial just once that housing need is met, you know, one of the next things is education is a big deal um, both here and in Puerto Rico. One of the reasons, and Hannah's reported on this really deeply in Puerto Rico. One of the reasons that people are are leaving or finding it hard to return is the really dire situation with education mm-hmm. there. Yeah, hundreds of schools are closing, um, will continue to be closed, and the education systems and the process of being privatized. Mm-hmm. So there's multi layers of um, crisis going on right now on the island, unfortunately. And sometimes Chicago or cities here on the mainland are more attractive than the situations that these families are leaving. But I mean, that's home. That island is home for these families. Um, and so, like I said, it's just a, it's multidimensional. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, there's another um, storm coming um, that they say will pass part of the part of the um, direction is through many of the parts that um, were hardest hit. I mean, you've both you, Carrie and um, Han have spent time there. Um, are you concerned about what you know, what 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 another storm could do? I mean, I you know, in terms of where things are at in the reconstruction process. And Martha was actually there just last week, too, ah. on behalf of our project. So were you hearing anything? Yeah, I mean, think people are very wary. Um, I feel people. there's a lot of talk um, about resilience. It's everybody's favorite buzzword in talking about um, Puerto Rico in particular and disaster recovery in general. Um, in a lot of ways, life in Puerto Rico is back to the normal, uh, which was never too stable to begin with. Um, but there's, I definitely, there's this edginess and this sort of like underlying tension that you feel in people where you just, if something else goes wrong, they're not going to be able to 
cope. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if there's another storm, if the power goes out for another three months, you know, people are better equipped at this point because now everybody has water filters or many people have water filters. They have solar lanterns. They have attempted to put in small infrastructural changes um, on a personal and community level that even if the government isn't doing it. But um, I think there's just a great deal of of anxiety and and unease. It looks like Beryl's going to be miss, pretty yeah. going to miss yeah. it. Going to miss gonna it. Going to miss it. So that's mm-hmm. good. But, but, the but energy, it's early. <laughs> and the energy infrastructure is very fragile. Um, and legislation prohibits uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and FEMA's um, workers from rebuilding the system to be updated and modern and um, able to withstand a strong storm like Hurricane Maria. And so that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from as well, is that if another storm comes through it, even just half of the strength of Maria lights out, blackout again. Um, that's just reality is there's not any modern equipment being moved into there. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. I'm talking with reporters Hannah Wiley, Carrie Leiderson, and Martha Bain. And we've been talking about FEMA's Transitional Sheltering Assistance Program and reconstruction efforts in Puerto Rico. Um, I'm curious, um, Martha, I'll go to you since you were just there, um, but feel free others to weigh in. Um, Whether I saw an interview with them. the mayor of San Juan sort of suggesting that there's kind of been a new shift in Puerto Rican identity and in politics. Um, I saw there's been a new push for a statehood bill here in um, Congress. Did you get a sense of sort of shifting political tides in Puerto Rico as to whether people are interested in statehood or the Commonwealth uh, option or whether this has somehow um, tipped the scale? I think that in terms of party politics, I, I'm very skeptical that anything has changed radically. I don't have a lot of faith that a statehood bill will go anywhere. Um, and at least uh, in terms of the people that I was talking to, most of them were not particularly interested in statehood as an option. Um, I do think that there's been, uh, for lack of a better word, a general consciousness raising. Um, people talk a lot about Maria, the effect of Maria as being one of kind of like ripping off the veil. That that people's eyes, both on the island and on the mainland, were finally open to a lot of things that have been going on for a really long time in terms of the education system, in terms of the energy infrastructure, in terms of the politics um, and the sort of like uncertain and weird status of Puerto Rico as a territory. And I think the um, independence, uh, even though it in, sort of avowed independence, independencistas are a small percent of the population, I think both on the islands and, say, in Chicago, it's been pretty clear that there's been a really disproportionate um, you know, amount of leadership from independentistas in the grassroots rebuilding and um, aid efforts, You know, probably because of the way they were organized around that goal and so conscious of the effects of colonialism going way back. They were ready to spring into action. And, you know, I'm sure that's having some impact on the overall political dynamics. Um, what about um, your project? The um, You've sort of been reporting on Puerto Rico, not just um, because of Puerto Rico, but this has been a couple of year focus on the island. Um, are there plans to go back again with the reporting trip at Medill? Yeah, positively with the social justice and investigative specialization at Medill, we're, we'll, we're planning to keep going back and also to keep reporting on the situation for evacuees and more generally um, 
for Puerto Rican and other uh, communities in Chicago that are facing affordable housing and all these kind of issues on a daily basis. Right. Not unique to Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, Carrie Leiderson is a lecturer at Northwestern University's graduate journalism program. She leads the social justice and investigative specialization there. Martha Bain is associate editor of the Social Justice News Nexus at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. And Hannah Wiley is a recent graduate of the Medill School of Journalism. Thank you all for joining me and talking about reconstruction in Puerto Rico and the housing program here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, in for Jerome McDonnell. Today we're taking you back to 1957 and the publication of a remarkable map of the floor of the Atlantic Ocean by an American female cartographer that would help change the way we view the world forever. Marie Tharp's discovery of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge was eventually taken as evidence of the theory of plate tectonics, yet her work was initially dismissed as girls' talk. The BBC's Louise Hidalgo spoke with geologist Bill Ryan, who was Marie Tharp's longtime colleague. She brings us this report from the program Witness. Marie Tharp was a redhead, flaming red hair, with a broad smile, and was dedicated to revealing to the world 70% of our planet that had been hidden all these years. In those days, women did not go on the research ships. So she poured over echo soundings that came back from the ships that had crossed back and forth across the oceans and turned these echo soundings into profiles, all meticulously plotted. And from this collection of profiles, she recognized a prominent ridge in the center of the Atlantic Ocean. This is what we know today as the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, is that right? It became the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And uh, she took this to her colleague, Bruce Hazen, and thought it was something really substantial. And he dismissed it as in Marie's own words, a girl's talk. But Marie Tharp was right. What she discovered was substantial. In fact, it would help bring about one of the greatest paradigm shifts in the earth sciences of the 20th century. The mid-Atlantic ridge that Marie Tharp had plotted is a mountain chain running the length of the floor of the Atlantic Ocean, and at the centre of it is a rift valley. This, we now know, is the boundary between some of the Earth's great tectonic plates and one of the largest geological features on the planet. But back in Marie Tharp's day, the scientific community was having none of it. At that time, the idea of continental drift was no-no. Continental drift was the theory that the great continents of the Earth had once been one supercontinent, a single landmass which had broken up and drifted apart over millions of years. The idea had been around for decades, but no established scientist believed it, even in the late 40s, when Marie Tharp first joined the Lamont Geological Laboratory at Columbia University. Then, Marie used to say, to be a drifter, as she called it, could get you fired. I had to cut and paste and replot. Do you recall reactions or discussions among the broader geological community? Did anyone, for example, try to argue that it wasn't a fair representation? Well, they not only said it wasn't fair, they said it was a bunch of lies. 
Bill Ryan joined Columbia University as a young graduate student. I landed in September of 1962 in the room right next to Marie Tharp. Can you imagine that? And so I had the opportunity to see her work as she developed maps of the South Atlantic and then of the Indian Oceans in an atmosphere where every faculty member at Columbia University was adamantly anti-continental drift, including the director of the lab. Only those of that time that could really talk comfortably about continental drift were the young graduate students who didn't know better to know all the reasons why drift couldn't occur. But she did give you this very graphic lesson one day, didn't she, in this idea that the continents had once been joined. It was a kind of light bulb moment, wasn't it? In her office, she had a a globe, a globe that had been uh, created by National Geographic. And it had a clear see-through plastic shell. And I remember one day, she put the shell over her rift valley, and she drew on the shell with a piece of charcoal the shape of her rift valley. And then she slid the see-through plastic shell so that that shape lined up with the edge of Africa. And it was the same. And she slid it over, and that rift valley ended up with the shape of the east coast of North America. And so this rift valley sat exactly in the middle with the shape of the two continents on the sides. So the symmetry because they're two Each piece of seafloor that's out there now, 100 miles away, 200 miles away, 300 miles away, was once together in the ancient rift valley. And so this identical signature is now split in two and carried to the two sides. We had this revolution we call the plate tectonic revolution. It was a Copernicus-like revolution, and we were in the middle of it. And it was just, for me, being in the right place at the right time. And in the same room as the right person. That's right. As a young girl growing up in Michigan, Marie Tharp used to help her father do soil surveys for the Department of Agriculture. It would leave her with a lasting love of maps and of science. But in those days, when it came to a job, women were expected to stay in the background and analyse the data that the men, like her colleague geologist Bruce Hazen, brought back from the research ships. She kept pretty much to herself, somewhat hidden. What did people believe before this? What did they think was on the bottom of the ocean? Well, according to Marie's own words, when she started her work, people considered the bottom of the oceans like the bottom of a giant bathtub, a flat plain filled with all the sediments that had washed off the continents in the hundreds to billions of years. But early work in laying the submarine cables in the late 1800s across the Atlantic had shown pretty much that there was a plateau in the center of the oceans. But they didn't have the echo-sounding technology until 1952, which was invented at Columbia University, to really show the profiles that could reveal an individual deep valley, this rift valley. And so then, with the help of an assistant, they plotted on the same map, but on a different sheet, onto these beautiful blue linens, earthquakes from the earthquake catalogs. And she discovered that earthquakes aligned with her valley, and that the earthquakes straddled around the world in a path of more than 40,000 miles. And so this crack was not just in the Atlantic Ocean, but it was probably in the other oceans as well. Her colleague, Bruce Hazen, also didn't accept the theory of continental drift and uh, interpreted it as maybe the Earth was expanding, and this was a crack that was appearing from an expanding Earth. It took a year, but eventually Marie Tharp managed to convince Bruce Hazen that this was, in fact, part of the evidence of continental drift. In 1957, they finished their first map of the North Atlantic, but it would take several more years for the outside world to accept their thinking. 
In the meantime, Bruce Hazen's name appeared on the academic papers they published. Marie's did not. Marie did not attend a lot of the seminars at the lab. She did not go to the international meetings. But there was one very important meeting held in 1959 of an international congress on the oceans in New York. And that's when the rest of the geological, geophysical community got for the first time to see her map of the Atlantic Ocean. And from that map, there was an enormous stir. The great French filmmaker and oceanographer Jacques Cousteau came to that conference, didn't he? And Cousteau had been a vehement opponent of continental drift, but he'd heard about their work and he'd begun to rethink, hadn't he? Cousteau had come to New York on his ship, the Calypso, and he'd put down a camera sled into her rift valley and had towed it across these lavas. And he presented at this Congress about a four-minute film, 16 millimeter, of a trip across these lava flows, and the audience gasped. These flows were where the tectonic plates were pulling apart, and molten material was oozing out of the earth and solidifying. It became known as seafloor spreading and was part of this revolutionary new theory that slowly began to gain acceptance. It wasn't really until towards the end of her life that her work was recognised, though, was it? She was named as one of the foremost influential cartographers of the 20th century, but it wasn't really that that drove her, was it? For her, her recognition would be her name on these extraordinary maps which line the corridors of all the universities and colleges. Have you asked people of my age who lived through this time period, the ocean floor that we have memorized in our head is Marie Tharp's ocean floor. Clearly as that. Marie Tharp died in 2006, Her maps and documents are today held at the U.S. Library of Congress. Bill Ryan still works at the Lamont Doherty Earth Institute at Columbia University. And that was Louise Hidalgo for the BBC program Witness. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about a mercy ship that delivers health care to Africa and beyond. Hope you can join us for that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, with production assistance from Viviana Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein. Mike Gilmore engineered today's show. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.